True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are in the media at the moment. Before we get into today's Minisode, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Lee Liebenberg and Marilise Dupria for their support on Patreon. Thank you so much. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marx, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. In our Spotlight Minisodes, I feature cases that are in the media at the moment, and there are a few really strange cases this week that definitely warrant a deeper dive. On Monday the 19th of April, a man arrived for work at a house in an upmarket suburb in Pretoria East. On the porch of the home, he found two women. One has since been named as 30-year-old Shariska Kloppers, and she was deceased. The other woman, whose identity has been withheld, was alive but unconscious and in critical condition. Upon entering the home, the man found his employer, property management mogul, 60-year-old Theo Kleinhans, deceased on the second level of the home. Near him lay the body of a fourth victim, also deceased, 23-year-old Mario Pretorius. Police and an ambulance were summoned and the unidentified woman was transported to hospital where she remains in a critical condition. The baffling scene was set in amongst what appeared to have been a party. Alcohol containers sat around the home, and police soon found drugs on the premises as well. While police have remained mum on most of the circumstances surrounding the strange incident, the family of one of the victims called in Specialised Security Services, a private investigation agency run by Mike Bolhais, and he and his investigators have shared more information about the death of the three people. It's emerged that Shariska, Mario and the surviving woman all worked for Theo Kleinhans at his property business. The four, as well as other employees, had all attended a party at a restaurant in Ferry Glen on the preceding Friday. 
It is known that there was an after-party at Kleinhans's home, but at this point it is unknown whether other employees also came to his house or not. Due to the nature of the three deaths and the presence of drugs in the home, the possibility that the victims overdosed is being looked into, and Bullhase also mentioned the possibility that the drugs may have been spiked. The private investigators have said that they are looking into the possibility that others may have been at the home, left and perhaps suffered health consequences elsewhere, so they're trying to determine whether any car accidents or other overdose deaths were reported over the weekend. While entire weekend parties are not unheard of, I do tend to wonder when the drugs were consumed, if indeed these deaths are as a result of that. If the drugs were taken on Friday, I would find it strange that the surviving woman was still alive more than 48 hours later, without any medical intervention. I am sure that cell phone activity will be key in this case, as that will tell investigators when lost the victims were active before their deaths, and possibly also who else may have been at the house. Bullhase has confirmed that there are several cameras in the home, and his agency has seized the footage to start combing through it and identifying who else was present that weekend. He also says that the house was known to be a party house of sorts, and the cameras were, in part, to film sexual encounters that would take place at this home. He describes the investigation as relatively complicated. He also alludes to emotional distress that has come to light with one of the victims that needs to be looked into. Something interesting that came out in an interview with Bullhais on Jacaranda Radio is that there were ashtrays in the house, and the house also smelled of cigarette smoke, but no cigarette butts were found anywhere, which seems to point to the possibility that the house was cleaned at some point. Bullhase does say that it is entirely possible that the employee that discovered the bodies may have entered through a rear entrance and started cleaning before stumbling upon the gruesome scenes. That will have to be determined in the course of the investigation. Of course, it is hoped that the surviving victim will make a full recovery and be in a position to provide a first-hand account of what happened. Whatever the cause of these deaths, they are senseless and terribly tragic. Mario Pretorius was just 23 years old and had started working for Theo Kleinhans in 2019. His Facebook profile says that he was single and he appears to have gone on a fitness journey in the last few years, with his stature changing from being quite normally built to very muscular in a relatively short period of time. He appears to have been doing very well in his position at Kleinhunter's company, and just last year he posed with a brand new vehicle he had purchased. Shiriska Kloppers was a mother of two small children and just 30 years old. Theo Kleinhunter was, of course, significantly older than the others, 
but his death is no less tragic. I'll keep an eye on developments in this case and keep you updated. The next case I want to chat about is one that is inevitably going to lead to a very long full case episode when the trial is over. Of course, the accused is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, but just the number of tragedies that have surrounded him and his family, whether he is responsible for them or not, is enough to probably write a book about. I've heard the name Ramiz Patel mentioned in the media, but I must admit that I haven't paid too much attention to the case. But I came across an article this week that changed all that. For the last four years, 30-year-old Ramiz Patel's trial for two murders has been scheduled and delayed on several occasions, and then started in fits and bursts, including a delay caused by a witness having been shot on the day before he was supposed to testify. The catalyst for all of these events occurred in 2015, when Ramiz Patel's wife, 28-year-old Fatima, was found murdered in her home. Fatima, who had three children with Patel, had been savagely beaten with a baseball bat before being strangled and then shot in the face. Ramiz stated at the time, and continues to maintain, that his wife had been killed by an intruder. This would not be the end of the Patel family's woes, though. In 2016, Patel's father, a successful Limpopo businessman, was murdered in what appeared to be an armed robbery at one of his businesses. Then, in 2017, tragedy struck once again when an armed man broke into Patel's mother's home and shot her dead. By this time, Patel had been arrested for the murder of his wife and he was out on bail. After their mother's murder, Patel's brother, Razine, made a statement to police. He told them that his brother had admitted to killing his wife in 2015. Razine was now coming forward because he feared that there was more blood on his brother's hands. He believed this because after his brother had confessed to him, Razine had told their parents. And then, one by one, their parents were murdered too. He said that his brother had threatened him with violence if he ever turned on him. Patel was subsequently also charged with the murder of his mother, 51-year-old Mahajin Banu Patel. The accused's brother was now a valuable witness to the prosecution. In 2018, Razine was set to testify against his brother, but the day before he was due to appear in court, the car he was driving in was shot at. Razine was wounded, but survived and fled to the United Kingdom to live with family there, fearing for his life. After recovering, he flew back into South Africa under armed guard to testify in court before leaving again. Razine's evidence backed up his initial statement, and more. He said that on the night of Fatima's murder, 
his brother had called him and told him that he had killed his wife. When he arrived at his brother's home, he had seen Fatima's body and noted that his brother seemed to have recently showered as his hair was wet. He also stated that his brother gave him a box of bloodied clothing and a black handgun to hide in a warehouse. Razine said that he was later contacted by his brother's second wife, as she had allegedly wanted to collect the box. As Razine gave this damning evidence against his brother, Patel sat in the dock, shaking his head. In April this year, Patel took the stand and failed to explain several inconsistencies in his actions around the time of his wife's murder. He will take the stand again when court resumes to be cross-examined by the state. The Patel family is well known in Limpopo and many have speculated that the murders may have been an attempt to gain a faster and more significant cut of the large inheritance that would be left to the Patel children by their parents. As a result of the death of Patel Sr. and his wife, as well as the arrest and extended imprisonment while awaiting trial of Ramiz, and then the fact that Razine has had to flee the country, most of the businesses have now had to be sold, as there is simply no one left to run them. At this point, no suspects have been identified in the killing of Patel's father or the shooting of his brother. It has also emerged that the father of Patel's second wife was also murdered in a botched kidnapping in 2018. I think you'll agree with me that this case is simply insane, and if Patel is found guilty of the murders of his wife and mother, I certainly hope that more investigation is done into the other murders that have surrounded this family. While the state is alleging that Patel killed his wife himself, I haven't been able to ascertain whether it is in fact their case that he committed the murder of his mother himself as well, or whether there was someone else involved. If Patel has indeed murdered both these women with his own two hands, we are dealing with a seriously dangerous offender here. I will definitely be keeping my eye on this one. The last case I wanted to chat about today is just as puzzling as the previous two. In late March, 51-year-old Renee Jane, an executive who worked for Cape Union Mart, was found murdered in her home. Renee lived on an estate called the Fierde Liefde Farm in Wolseley. The small town, which is 130 kilometres outside of Cape Town, has a relatively low violent crime rate. But in the last year, it has seen a few murders. Despite this, Renee's murder still shocked residents, because the estate she lived in is very secure. But it would come to light that on that night, it was breached in multiple ways. An elderly couple living in the estate were woken at a quarter to midnight on Friday when a heavy wooden statue that they'd had on their porch was thrown through their bedroom window. Three Afrikaans-speaking men 
demanded their valuables and the keys to their vehicle. They then tied the victims up and locked them in a bathroom. The couple were able to escape after loosening their bindings and climbing through a bathroom window. They pressed their panic button and phoned the police who quickly attended the scene. It was discovered that the men had indeed taken the couple's car and it was later abandoned just 17 kilometres away in Tilbach. At 3.30am on the Saturday morning, while police were still on the scene taking statements and searching for forensic evidence, the caretaker of the estates had begun calling each of the residents to ensure that everyone was okay and that no one else had been broken into. When he was unable to get Renee Jane to answer her phone, he let the police know and they drove around the estate to her home. They found Renee deceased in her bedroom. She was alone in her house. Renee's murder is another horrific blow for her mother Kathy. After Renee's brother died from cancer in 2010 and her father, who was an editor for Sorry magazine, and an assistant editor for Heisknurt also passed away. Renee is also survived by her husband, Raj. I know that police have said that the elderly couple were hit first, and I'm sure they have a reason for saying this, but I cannot help but wonder if these intruders would really have taken the chance to continue on to another home in the estate when they knew that the elderly couple were only tied up and it was possible that they could raise the alarm. If they hit that couple first, why did they leave them alive and kill Renee? It's just a bit of a puzzle, to be honest. A highly secure estate that suddenly breached on one night and the perpetrators hit two homes at once, killing one person but not even assaulting or physically harming another couple. Could the break-in at the elderly couple's home have been a ruse to distract from the intended crime, which was the murder of Renee Jane? Or did she just fight back, and one of the three men killed her as a result? Is throwing a statue through a window really the best way for professional burglars to gain access to a home? On the 7th of April, News 24 reported that a 39-year-old man had been taken into custody for questioning around Renee's murder. There are no further reports about the man having appeared in court or anything of that nature, so it's unknown whether he was in fact arrested. I cannot begin to imagine the pain and trauma that Renee's mom must be going through at this time, having lost her only surviving child and immediate family member in such a horrific way. For her sake, as well as for justice for Renee, I really hope that a breakthrough is made in this case very soon. And that is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to a podcast I've been enjoying recently. It is True Crime, but it's a bit of a different take on the true crime genre. The podcast is called The Troubles, and it covers the bombings and attacks that took place in Northern Ireland over a 30-year period. Here's their promo.
The Troubles was a 30-year period in Northern Ireland in which multiple sides and organisations were at war with each other. There were bombings, assassinations, prison breakouts, fanatical leaders, serial killers, and much more. The Troubles podcast is a non-partisan podcast which aims to tell the stories of the Troubles in a digestible way. It's narrated by me, and the episodes are non-sequential, so you can jump in anywhere along the way. It's the perfect podcast for people interested in historical true crime. Season 1 has already been released, and Season 2 will be released throughout 2021, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts, or by searching The Troubles Podcast on any social media platform. See you there. I highly recommend you check out The Troubles Podcast, and I'll leave a link to the podcast in the show notes. That's me for the week. Don't forget to follow the show on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next week with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>